and welcome to episode 8 of Nomads, the HCI podcast. We have a lovely, our lovely guest today, Phnom Bagley. Welcome. Thanks for having me on this episode. I'm excited. I'm super excited for this episode as well, Phnom. And uh, for all our listeners, Phnom is a founding partner and creative director of a design studio located in San Francisco, California. It is called Nonfiction and they do some amazing work. And uh, to give an intro about Phnom, she's a French industrial designer with 15 years of experience. She's also a futurist, space architect, board advisor, public speaker, and so on. I mean, how do you do so many things, Phnom? Can you please tell us? Yeah, sure. So I'm someone who gets bored really quickly. So (laughs) let's start there. Um, how did I get in the world of design? Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be two things. I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to be an astrophysicist at the same time. And I never wow. understood when, when people said, oh, you have to be an, uh, you know, a left brain person or right brain person. I always knew yeah. I was both. Full um, brain. <laughs> <laughs> and so because I'm a practical person, I changed my, my direction a little bit and became an industrial designer, which is someone who designs hardware. And a, a space architect, uh, someone who designs habitats and rovers for other planets. So, so you know, my, my, my love for space is still here. My love for sol- solving problems is, you know, brighter than ever. And uh, I am honestly doing the job of, of my dreams. Uh, every day is fun. Every day is new. Every day I'm exposed to wonderful people who are developing amazing technologies. And I get to be at the forefront of it. Uh, before it even comes out. So it's really exciting. That's interesting because I personally believe that since childhood, you know, people have called me stubborn as well. I always believe humans can sit uh, in the intersection of uh, logic and creativity. You don't have to choose between one and other. And that is clearly reflect you in your education as well. I think Uh, you have studied industrial design. You have studied something related to space engineering. uh, If I'm right, Uh, could you please tell us? I actually have a, a degree in aerospace architecture, uh, so I'm not technically an engineer. I work very closely to them, but uh, architecture has to do with uh, interior, exterior architecture of uh, habitats and things like that. So, yeah. Um, so what's interesting about that degree is that the school I went to is, I believe, still the only uh, graduate school in the world to to offer that degree. And when I graduated, I think we were five students in the world. To have that degree. <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty small. It's still small. So it's too cool. small. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why you're out there in the world making it bigger and making it and bringing the influence. I just, I wanted to say also, I just love um, anything interdisciplinary. I just love how you're like, oh, I don't need to choose because I felt like that, like my whole entire childhood. I was like, oh, I like, I'm, I'm pretty analytical, pretty logical. There's things I want, like structure, there's frameworks that I want to follow, but I'm also a bit of a creative. Like I studied economics and music heart performance in undergrad, which are two things that like didn't, didn't make any sense. I was just like, well, I just like both. People are like, oh yeah, so what are you going to do with both? And I was like, I just want to have fun. <laughs> I want to study it. I want to study it all. And then HCI came into the mix. And then yeah, and that's perfect. And and you're gonna see more and more of these specialties and careers that mix the two together because humans are finally starting to understand that. And if you look at the history of work, you know, back in the day, people had one career. They were the one thing represented yeah. their whole you know life and 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 the memory after they die. And now, you know, by age 30, you have 
three or four careers and you're looking forward to the eight, eight that are coming up, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, people are less uh, obsessed with climbing the ladder, um, yep. you know, mm-hmm. um, vertically. They want to climb it all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. Left, right, mm-hmm. vertically, go down for a couple of years just to experience nature and then come back up. And, and that's honestly how we learn the most. You know, people who are open-minded that way and, and look to places that they're not experts in in order to think differently is, is to me, the best people to work with. It's like the playground of life. We humans are definitely interdisciplinary and uh, so are our problems, I think. So how do we harness design or uh, HCI to solve the problems of human beings, which are much more complex. So it all starts with not trying to solve everything at once, right? Uh, that there's a an advice that I give everybody, entrepreneurs, students, everybody is the first thing you have to do is to do less. Don't you know? Again, don't try to do everything. Just do one thing, maybe two, and then mm-hmm. and then the second advice is do it better. Do better at everybody else. It needs to interact better, and people need to connect with it better. It needs to be more attainable, etc. And after you've done uh, less, you've done better. Then you can do more. Um, mm. You know, do do more and connect with more disciplines and make it more complex and make it even more unique than it it was. And after you've done these three uh, steps, you can you can do whatever you want, right? I'm at a stage in my career where I have gone through the first three phases. I've done less. I've done better. I've done more, and now I get to do whatever I want um, yeah. because. And, and that's, that's what we all want, right? We all have ideas. We want to put them forward. Uh, we want to connect disciplines that have never spoken to each other. Uh, and that's where, that's where a lot of the magic comes from. That's where, uh, you know, what we call science fiction today will become reality tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what excites us. You know, as you mentioned, you guys turn science fiction into reality and, uh, you have a video series which is called Future Future where you discuss, you know, how things are going to be. And uh, I think the definition of future is changing, you know, as the generations pass by uh, due to the technological advancements we have or due to the impatience of, uh, you know, the generations as we go forward. Uh, it, it is changing. So how do we ensure that we, we make sure the design stays relevant as we move forward, you know, in future? Yeah, I mean, what what you define as the future changes definition, person yep. per person, right? I think of the future as two hundred years from now, all the time. Okay. Um, I, uh, so, uh, and also, my life is very insignificant in the way I see the future, right? Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with my fascination with astrophysics, uh, which is a field that I wanted to study at first. Is that we're talking about scales in time and in space that the brain can't even fathom, right? And that's what I love about it. And I think the future is, is that, um, you know, immensity of possibility going every direction. You know, if one person does something differently, then the future of this industry is going to go uh, a different way. And, and I kind of love that. I love the idea of that. Um, and, and as being a designer, being an architect, being, you know, uh, a person who uh, is in charge of running a small branch of the future, it's very exciting to um, to know that you know I or my team have some power over the future of an industry. Um, yeah. And it's not power in the sense of like, ooh, you know, I'm in charge. It's more like, oh, 
we get to choose that. We are the ones who get to choose that. And that can influence many things that we haven't even thought about. And that's, that's wonderful. Our job is to make sure that that's responsible, right? Yeah. That uh, we are including people um, rather than excluding, or if we're excluding is in order to include in the future, um, which is always you know, a step you have to do with future things. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's about knowing what your life goal is, you know, what your purpose is. Uh, are you here to serve yourself? Are you here to serve others that are close to you or people that aren't even born yet? And once yeah. that's very clear to you, you just have to fill up the, the gaps in between. Mm. Right. I'm super curious as well. Um, you talked a lot about just like this this concept of designing for the future and a lot of like what your work is like transformational technology. Um, can you explain like what that is? And uh, maybe are there any examples out there that we may not be consciously like consciously aware of? And also like what's the most extreme example that you can think of? <laughs> Oh, uh, there, I mean, there's so many. It's crazy. So transformational mm-hmm. technology is, um, if if I pair it with uh, Nicole Bradford, uh, the, the, uh, I think she's co-founder of TransTech Conference, which happens every mm-hmm. November. Everybody should attend. Um, so basically what she says is that the future of what we call tech today should be transformational tech. Uh, and that is technology that is in service of uh, humans' well-being and flourishing. Um, so we have bodies, we have feelings, we experience pain, we experience depression, we experience all those things throughout our lives, and we can actually use technology to help us go through it. We can use technology to help us align with the future of work and the future of well-being that works for us, right? And what's wonderful about technology is that it's getting more and more complex and more and more personalized, hopefully, um, and and it can actually start solving things on the go um, and when i say on the go it can take the form of wearables that read your body or stimulate your body in many ways mm-hmm. so i give you a few example uh, examples of, of things we've worked on so the uh, a company called halo neuroscience uh, came to us and said hey we have this technology that um, helps stimulate the motor cortex and when you do that in a very specific way you can actually learn movement faster and at first you're like well, what is that for and then you realize that athletes get to repeat their movement again and again and actually can mm-hmm. get to the optimal um, you know, performance faster. Yes. And that can happen for us as well, who we just go to the gym and do you know, a couple squats. Uh, mm-hmm. And that can be very useful for dancers. That can be very useful for musicians who need mm-hmm. a lot of dexterities in, that, yep. in, in their fingers. So that's one. And uh, another one has to do with meditation. There's a lot of like VR technology or, or wearable technology that helps you get in a, in a meditative state a lot faster and a lot more effectively, but most importantly, help you uh, get uh, into that state on a regular basis, right? Meditation is not about, oh, I spent two hours meditating today. I'm good for the week. It's something that you do every day, right? Uh, there's also uh, heart rate variability, uh, there's also galvanic skin response. There's EEG. There's mm. uh, stimulation of many kinds. There's electrical stimulation that can, you know, this has been used for like sleep therapy. Uh, like uh, we designed um, a, a product called um, Philips Smart Sleep for the company Philips uh, many years ago. Uh, you can use VR to help with pain management. Uh, the company Karuna Labs, for example, is helping people who are suffering from phantom limb, limb uh, syndrome 
um, mm-hmm. basically train their brain to forget about that pain. Um, so, so yeah, uh, there's a company called You Like in Canada that is developing uh, photobiomodulation and that helps with a mental acuity and has been very successful with people su- suffering from Alzheimer's disease, for example. So I can go on forever. Uh, one yeah. of the very exciting things uh, that, that came out recently is a company called Achille Interactive. And that, that is actually the first FDA-approved video game uh, targeting um, uh, children with ADHD. It's basically a closed-loop system that like, reads your brain and say, oh, the child is focused right now. Let's make the game a little bit more difficult. And the child is losing focus. Let's make it a little bit easier so they can come back on track. So it's a real-time loop that's going on like that. And that's helping people, children, uh, people with disability, people who are um, you know, losing their abilities to, um, to, to get back on track uh, without any invasive solution. Mm-hmm. I love that too. And I love this focus as well on just your entire background of industrial design and hardware, because I think at least from what I see in both academia and like workshops and just like professionally in industry, you do see a lot of like a focus on screens or like mobile interactions. Not to say that those aren't important and they haven't shaped incredible experiences, like for example, social media and network systems because of screens and UIs. But I do think that sometimes people miss out on the fact that like HCI and UX is so much more. It's like very, like what you're talking about in terms of just like architecture and space. Like I think because of COVID people, for example, are realizing how important the space that they're in and they exist in is so important to how they perceive and how their relationship with technology is. There's a lot of things with gestural movement. There's a lot of things with eye movement with like what you're talking about with skin conductance, with your heartbeat. There's so many parts of the human body that I think are missing that we don't design for. And so I love the fact that you have this focus and work on just like the overall human body, not just the visual, the visual cortex of the human brain. We have, we have a very big brain um, and a lot of it we don't use or a lot of it we're not designing towards. Um, but you mentioned, yes. And also a lot of people think that we only have five senses, you know, yes, like exactly. light, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. We have a lot more, you know, we're aware of temperature, we're aware of pain, we're aware of balance, we're aware of uh, our own body in space, right? So, um, so we can, you know, through HDI, through better industrial design, through better use of technology, we can actually tap into all of this and get into experiences, perhaps synesthetic experiences that are not even describable in words. And how wonderful would that be, right? You know, that's amazing. I feel it's all about feeling alive, right? We, hum- we humans want to feel alive as much as possible. And uh, I think the flora and fauna also want to feel alive. And uh, if we design for them as well, it's called sustainability, I think. So how do we make sure we address uh, designing for sustainability? Oh, I think we need to start thinking about it now. Every time we think about uh, integrating a new material or or the size of things or more like complex uh, products, we need to think about its end of life or its circularity, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, for example, uh, I'm involved, I'm I'm a board advisor to a company called Positive Fibers. And that company is trying to redefine the supply chain that uh, supplies the world of fashion, right? And how, you know, they can basically create compostable fashion that doesn't strangle turtles, you know, down the line. Um, and, um, and and yes, uh, everything that we design, everything that 
is manufactured will end up in the ocean. That's that's how life works, right? We we yep. we haven't found a solution to that. So so how do we create less harm um, to to you know the biosphere on this planet? How do we reduce you know the carbon emissions uh, yep. that come from um, you know R and D that come from manufacturing that come from transporting goods left and right on the on the planet. So so yeah, uh, these are the things that we have to think of as industrial designers, are architects, and uh, and 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 really integrate them into into the way people develop new companies. So I'm involved a lot in you know incubators and giving a lot of mentorship time to to to. Um, uh, to founders uh, of different kinds, and 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 the question of sustainability is, always seems to be an afterthought, right? Yeah. It comes very very far behind return on investment, 10x, you know, all these like buzzwords that everybody's yeah. excited about, which are very important. Don't get me wrong; I think a healthy company is you know is is what everybody needs to be, but sustainability should not even be a question. It should be you know just the basis, one of the foundation statements of what a company is and why it should exist um, what is your company bringing to this world efficiency seems to be you know very big right now with SaaS and all that but but how many more solutions do we need for that you know what is obviously not working because a lot of people are still struggling with that and there's like a million apps uh, offered to you for that but <laughs> but what what problems are we really solving and i think the united nations with the sustainable de- the sustainable development goals that they put out in 2015 are giving us already you know a path to follow you know um what is it like no poverty and and uh, uh protecting the biosphere whatever the 17 goals are um that is what we should work towards um and let's stop putting garbage out in the world like who needs another product that does exactly the same thing, a little bit thinner and faster? Uh, why can't we reuse things? Why can't we repair things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm involved with another company called Kaya. And Kaya is basically trying to um, develop the foundation of African tech for Africans. And that there's a lot of you know, implications with that. And, uh, and, and what we, we, we figured out is that what's happening in Africa is that it's a culture that repairs things, a culture that cares about the physicality of things, and we'll use them until they stop working. So how do we inject that fact with the way that people have been consuming more and more stuff and, and really change the foundation of how we fabricate and consume things on this planet? Mm. There's a term um, that someone used at a talk that I attended called the silicon bullet, which is just the idea of like, you have a problem and you're going to inject technology in it. And it's going to solve that problem. Um, and so we're all here in the space of technology and by the magic of technology, too, we're able to talk and meet each other. Um, are there any problems that you see that technology won't solve that you have to think around? Because we all use it and it's ubiquitous and that there's a lot of things maybe surrounding that um, and consequences that we need to think about. I, I wouldn't say that there's anything that technology cannot solve because I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I think there are some things that need to um, be revealed within ourselves without technology, right. Mm-hmm. Knowing how to read our own body needs to start with us. You can hook your, ba- your, your body to like a million electrodes and sensors, but 
but you know what's wrong. What's wrong. You know something's wrong. You may not know what's wrong exactly, but, but you need to learn to read your body. And that's something that I've, I've seen a lot of adults lacking. And I don't know where it comes from, uh, lack of awareness, lack of, you know, lack of the right type of education or, or lack of a support system that allows them to express themselves with vulnerability. Right. Um, so all those things are are things we need to be better at as human. And I don't think you need technology to get there. You can use technology to to help yourself be more aware of it. But uh, but these are the type of things that, you know, like like psychotherapy, speaking to someone who really understands what's coming out of your mouth and your emotions. Uh, that's going to be very hard to replace. I'm not saying it's impossible, you know, who knows about the future, but, but all those like micro changes and, and, and perceptions happening uh, in, in humans, uh, we're very, very far from, from catching those. So, so, so yeah, my, let's focus on, on reading ourselves first. Yeah, reading ourselves and reading, you know, our basic science uh, without the use of, without the excess use of technology is kind of important. Although uh, there have been a lot of technological advancements to read our uh, vitals, to read uh, the galvanic skin response or the heart rate or the pulse using smartwatches and so on. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have been always uh, discussing about optimized usage versus addiction, where where does it start as an optimized usage of technology and how does it end up becoming addiction and uh, uh, we limiting our human contact or we limiting our social connections uh, just because we want to use technology more? Well, the thing with technology is that we're fighting chemically and electrically inside of us. You know, you, you have this device that's like pumping dopamine into your brain constantly mm-hmm. And then, and then you have humans who are just like there. Uh, so, um, so how do you fight that, right? How do you create more dopamine on one side and reduce it on the other side? You know, and, and that's awareness. That's uh, creating good habits. That's uh, uh, retraining your brain. Okay, I need to jump on this because this is super fascinating. Um, so over the summer, I started reading this book called Behave by Robert M. Sapolsky. It's an incredible book. He is a neuroscientist and studied like apes, but it's his entire book about human behavior at the quote, their best and their worst. Um, and we we're just talking about uh, like, you know, there's so much technology, so much stimuli basically that people can't filter and which is why like curation is really popular for like social media or just in general. Um, so in thinking about the limitations of our physiological and cognitive processes and human senses. Since, let's say, like you think about the future 200 years from now and evolution maybe has like one little kink that changes it, are we trying to push these limits that we currently have or are we designed to maximize what we can but aren't doing? I think it's both. Um, You know, um, going to places where evolution wouldn't necessarily bring us to is something that's happening. There's a company right now that just launched called Atom Limbs. Um, what they're doing is that they're, they're creating uh, prosthetics that you can control with your mind. But that is actually not the CEO's long-term vision. His long-term vision is to defy death, which is crazy, right? But, but when, you, when, when, when you think about it, if you replace each part of your body, starting with your arms and your hands, 
you know, what happens, you know, when it comes to your, your brainstem and, and, uh, and, and your personality, is there a way to replace that eventually? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we would be full to believe that people are not going to try at least. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, I think, I think we, we're gonna, we're gonna try to do both. We're gonna go beyond what humans, uh, will naturally be. And, uh, we will try to, to replace the things that we think are not working. Yeah. I definitely don't want a future where humans have conquered the death or, uh, you know, address the problem of uh, mortality where humans can live forever uh, and become immortals. You know, that could uh, be more chaotic, I think. Uh, People will try forever. Yeah. (laughs) People will always try to find the the fountain of youth, the the tree of life, the, you know, all those like very mythical. Yeah. They they have tried. They have tried. (laughs) And we're still doing it. This is the question I ask all my guests so that I want to create more awareness about design or any misinterpretations of it. Uh, Because most of my friends think, uh, you know, I just make things look beautiful and pretty at the end of the day. That is not what I do, guys. So what does design mean to you for now? So it's funny that you bring that up because I, I give lectures about that, how, how a lot of people think that industrial design is just making things pretty. Well, we don't go through, you know, that much schooling and, uh, and that, you know, emotional pull, push and pull at work <laughs> just to put a collar on something. Um, and so to me, good design, it comes down to good design. Good design is when you have the perfect balance between value, function, and appearance. And uh, so value can be value to me as a designer, can be value to the end user, can be value to the person who lives with the end user or cares for them, can be value to the company or to the manufacturer, to any stakeholder involved, right? So value is number one. Number two is function. Does it work the way I want it, when I want it, however I want it, right? And technology has, has helped us refine what that means, right? We used to have objects uh, with or without electronics that did one thing and hopefully did it very well. And now we have very complex products that are interactive and you know personalized and mm-hmm. you know change based on the environment, day, night, et cetera. So, so very, very complex, but still uh, what we demand of these products is the same thing. Does it work when I want it, uh, however I want it? And then finally, the appearance. So the appearance, a lot of the time people think, oh, it's white or it's green or it's red and you know it doesn't matter what color it is it does matter it does matter what as much as you know when you enter a, a place that's that's very calm and almost religious right it's it just feels a certain way same thing with the objects you surround yourself with it feels a certain way to to have a product that feels very well put together or with a fir- certain finish or color or that ages a certain way and all all those aspects that we work on and also trends, you know, trends have different emotional um, uh, impacts on us. You know, it, it can feel like extremely meaningful to our life or certain, you know, certain years in our lives and then, and then completely meaningless for the rest of our lives. So, uh, so yeah, all of these are the, the tools that we use to turn um, a technology or a product into a great design. And, um, you know, you can also talk about timelessness, you know, what makes a product amazing when it came out and amazing 50 years, 100 years later. It's kind of very much like music 
there's certain music that's like very exciting for you know the four months it's out and then you listen to it 10 years later and you're embarrassed at yourself and then other other types of music that have been around for a long time i'm not only talking about classical music which you know comes up a lot but but also you know um you know tribal music things that that really come from uh, from from tradition of multiple generations of people and what meaning comes behind it and how it's inspiring other types of music and on different continents. So, um, so so yeah, it's 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 important to be aware of all of that and and that that brings up a a point that's very important in the work that I do. I I work seemingly in the future. All, all the time. And, and that is what we design. We design things for the future, things from two years from now, all the way to a hundred years from now. And in order to do that in a way that works, I need to tap into what's here today. And I need to tap into the past, understand the traditions, understand what has worked for many hundreds of years, what people have been uh, so, you know, clenching themselves onto and really love for, for, for reasons that go beyond trends uh is is very important to understand because we're not here to create the future that's going to be you know vapid and just disappear after a couple of years we want it to stay we want it to be the foundation of what the future of technology or the future of design is so in order to do that we need to understand what has worked what is very durable what stays after civilizations right when you look at civilizations that are not around anymore what's left there's some architecture, there's some art, there's some object artifacts, uh, perhaps there's some music or, or literature, and, and that's about it, right? People's arguments, uh, quarrels, you know, uh, all this, like, like, discourse that we've had that have created stress and anxiety to, to each other's life, that, that doesn't stay after, after, um, after a civilization is over. So, so let's, let's, hold on to what's actually important and what we're going to leave to the future. I want to share <clears throat> that, that, no, honestly, that was, that was beautiful. <laughs> um, and when you're talking about um, people's feelings, like the value function and aesthetic of it, of something, it really reminded me. And also this might be a nice term to use for people who think, at least in the Western world, that design is like just purely aesthetics. Um, in Japan, they teach uh, kansei engineering. That's what they call their version of caring about how people feel and the emotional experiences surrounding a product. And then the, the object itself facilitating and being the liaison between the feeling and the result, essentially. Um, and I think that's great. It is engineering and it is also design um, to validate it in our space. And... This whole aspect of like understanding the past, I think, is really important because I think even in education, you learn in history, you're like, oh, I learned this in history class, whatever. But like when you're trying to design for what's happening in the present, like, you only have the information you have now and before, and now you're going to try to do something for the future. And I think our role becomes looking for patterns, right? Like you just talked about, like, what is the what is the overarching story of like human civilization that has persisted across the ages? And it's very fascinating to see patterns even across different continents. Like, quite frankly, for like all of humanity, there's certain stories. Like, I think when I was a child, this is kind of stupid, but like I was mind boggled that dragons existed in every continent, like every continent, every civilization had their version of a dragon. And so it makes you wonder, were there actually dragons? 
I have no idea. Maybe they're gone. But it's something I think that's very fascinating that we as people in our lived human civilization civilization experience can share these stories that persist like for so many years. And I'm wondering for how many more years, right? Even past that 200 par- marker point that you guys are designing for. So I just think that's fascinating. <laughs> wow. That was well said, Fanam. That was wonderful. And, uh, you know, I just uh, think if we can understand the patterns of existence over the years, uh, you know, if we can uh, understand the data, that's beautiful. And that's what UX researchers do with products and uh, users as well. And uh, now coming to, you know, how do you make sure that the people you're working with are aligned to your values of design? Yeah, I mean, before starting designing on anything, you you really have to meet with the client and really understand what their short-term and long-term goal is. You know, is the short-term goal just to put out a product on time and on budget? That's usually, you know, the first layer. Uh, what is the long-term vision of this company or this product, right? Is it V1 out of 10 versions of the same technology? Um, and then every time we try, we, we, we engage with a new client, we also always think about, you know, what is your company going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What do you want to uh, change in the world? You know, where, where can your technology bring something to someone you're not even thinking of today? Um, and, you know, because we exclusively work with products that have never existed before, technologies that have never been used before, uh, it's it's easier for us to do that, right? Uh, whereas, you know, if a company came to us and say, hey, can you make an enclosure for this product that's been around for 50 years? It's not very easy for us to to find the long-term goal of why this product should exist. So, so yeah, so why should this product exist? And and really the question of why um, at, at, at the base of every communication with the client or or the um, the partners that, that you're working with to develop a product. Why are we using this technology? Why is the battery so big? Why, uh, why does it have this form factor? Why are we using this color? Um, you know, why are we only targeting these people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that can be very annoying after a while. Don't, don't fight <laughs> me on that. But, uh, yeah. but, but really understanding the why of all the decisions and how far we can push all of this is extremely important, especially when you're, Kind of like throwing darts in the in the dark, um, you know, designing the future, which is what most people think we do. But everything comes from somewhere, and that somewhere has to answer the question why. And I also think asking why, uh, it just explains the curiosity that we have, and uh, that connects to education. I think uh, you know the reason why we need to have a proper education system or the system of lifelong learning that uh, you have mentioned in one of your projects. Now, could you please, uh, we actually talked to Rial about situated cognition and uh, education in our previous episode as well. So please tell us what would the future of, uh, you know, lifelong learning education be like? Is it possible? Yeah, we don't have the infrastructure of lifelong learning yet. Uh, and that's something that we absolutely need to build. Uh, the whole Movida project, which is that, that Singapore school, uh, the North Star of that project was human autonomy. What does that mean to, to put children through a school system where when they grow up, they can do what they want, whenever they want, with whomever they want, 
how I I want it, right? And that's power, right? That's um, that's uh, that autonomy can actually help them in their own lives. You know, if I if I suffer from depression, perhaps knowing that I'm capable of doing that can help me, you know, uh, move on to to a next step in my life. So um, so. In order to build an environment that is conducive to this, you have to empower people, uh, empower the children. And you can empower, by, empower them by, by giving them the tools to create the environment that works for them. So we're very aware, we've all been to school, we've all uh, interacted with people and realized that people are neurodiverse. Everybody thinks differently, they learn differently, they retain differently, they experience happiness and sadness differently. Um, so really developing that you know emotional intelligence and 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 that awareness of how they how can the world work for them and and so the way we designed the school is that the children are able to hack that school right the school is not just an environment you go in and then oh you know grades uh, abc and then and then move on right it's it sounds very impersonal like but if yeah like most schools. Um, but if you come in and you're like, you sit on a chair, like this chair doesn't work for me. It's too tall. And then you're able to cut the bottom of the chair or to modify it or making the seats a little bit more comfortable and changing the color into something that actually speaks to you. Or if you can, you know, hack what's on the screen in the school. So, so you know, the information that's on it actually speaks to you or entertains you in a way that helps you retain and and, and learn and combine things in a very creative way. That's the kind of school that we want. And all of that technology exists today, existed 10 years ago, right? But we're not giving the tools to the children to do that for themselves because, you know, a lot of the world still believes that adults know everything and then the children are just here to absorb as much as possible. Um, so, so, yeah, that's not how the world works. And I think a lot of us who have been, you know, for the most part, very uh, attentive in school and and probably more like the good students, we, we are able to step away from that and say, hey, people are different. We need to welcome you know, more. We need to eliminate, eliminate bias because this is a bias problem. There's a bias that you know, if you're good at reading, math, and, and uh, science, you'll do great in life. You know, how many PhDs do you know are completely useless in life? And how many people who don't even have a high school degree do you know are geniuses? So, yeah. um, so, so there's a huge range and we need to welcome people and, and create that school environment that really welcomes all of that and ex- exponentially, you know, explodes everybody's potential so they can become who they want and, and really feel comfortable in the future they've built for themselves. Mm-hmm. This is really about and resonating with just the idea of giving people, giving people underrepresented minorities, et cetera, neurodiverse individuals, um, just giving these people a seat at the table to make these decisions and to be able to direct that future, quite frankly. Um, in also that last episode, coincidentally enough, uh, we talked about like giving them the space and being able to show that there's value in providing and including them in the conversation and in leadership. You, I'm sure we can tell how many times people are like, well, we're going to like do participatory design and include these people and we're going to design for them. But when you look at their leadership, where are they? No, they're not there. And then something happens with the product that they release into the world and it doesn't respond to the needs and challenges of the people they're trying to design for. Um, and so 
that education example, I think, is incredibly powerful just because there's so much that is ingrained at such a young age to so many children. Um, speaking purely from my own experience as an Asian American female, we're taught like I'm very, like, and this is reflected, and I'm still trying to fight this, which is like, just do your work, like, don't complain, you know, they, they know what's best, they know what's good for you, you know, like, you just get used to it. When there's like so much richness that you miss out of when you kind of squash those voices and that creativity that people can have. And so, and like, just like the identity of, I think, even being a designer and saying like, no, this is not how we're going to do these things. Like I'm envisioning a future where people can express themselves and it is beneficial. And to your point, again, um, previously, just about like business value, there is value there and we just need to be, we just need to tap into it. And maybe is that, maybe that's our responsibility to shape that infrastructure essentially. Um, But it's a way to frame that conversation of like, where is the value of our work and where is the value of people and our work has to do with people of course and so thinking about yeah and what you're talking about is exactly the example i give when people tell me oh in the future ai and robots are going to replace us like what kind of job am i going to have creative thinking is really hard for a machine (laughs) right (laughs) intuition is very hard for machine um perhaps we're going to get there one day but not in our lifetime right um Mm -hmm. so so let's develop the skills that cannot yet be replaced by machines. And, and on top of that, make sure that people who, who, who are taught that way experience a fulfilling life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have anybody in the history of humans that all, has always wanted the same thing, to be happy on this planet or to have their loved ones be happy, right? That's, it's, it's that basic. Uh, however we, we get there differs, you know, uh, based on who, who you are, what culture you live in and, and uh, you know, what time and space you're, you're in. But, but in the end, we just want to be fulfilled and happy. You know, we live in a society where doing one job or excelling in one field is becoming very hard as we move forward. But uh, uh, when we look back at, uh, you know, what you're doing, uh, you have been in the line of uh, design, teaching, HCI. Uh, you started your own design studio. I mean, the list can go on. So, if you have to connect you connect the dots in your life and uh, tell us what uh, you know, what's the reason, or uh, you know, what is your secret to success? So it all starts with the same state of mind. I walk in a room and I'm very comfortable telling people I know nothing. Yes. There's no shame. There's no I shame in that. saying I know nothing. I yeah. Like there's a multiple PhD neuroscientists in front of me. They they know everything about you know what they're doing. Great, awesome. Yeah. I'm not going to be you ever, right? Um, I don't have enough lifetime to learn everything you just did. So um, so when you know nothing, you're also very aware that you're also someone. When you're someone. You have a set of logic, you have your personal experience or your professional experience, and you have your intuition. So I call that LEI. LEI is, is kind of like the basis of, of who you are as a creative, regardless of how complex or how um, you know, remote a new technology is or, or something you have to work is, you, you still have these three things. And then that's where you start. You walk in a room, you say, I know nothing but I have my logic, my experience, and my intuition. And based on that, 
you're going to filter the information and say, oh, that's interesting. I want to keep that. Oh, that's not interesting. Nobody's going to care. And really, really pull out the information that's useful to you and then build that as the foundation of your the concept you're going to develop, right? You have an understanding of what people care about. People care about things that make them feel a certain way. Feelings are everything. Now that, you know, it's, you know, it's loving something, hating something, um, reacting to something, not reacting to something um, is, is something that designers control. And, um, and when, when you want to change people's lives, which is, you know, kind of like my, my life purpose, um, you can't shove a bunch of nerdy things in a box and say, hey, if you use this every day, it's going to change your life. Nobody's going to care. I've seen people who are willing to go through pain just because the product we put in front of them was inconvenient, right? Yeah. It's inconvenient to plug in that USB-C every day and charge that thing. Or I'd rather have, you know, a level six pain. Humans are like that. It's crazy. Um, but based on that knowledge, how can you modify the design so you can actually welcome people into changing their own lives, right? That's, what's, that's what good design is. That was amazing advice, Fanam. To all the young nomads out there, it is okay not to know something. You can learn. Uh, it is okay to identify what are your strengths and weaknesses. Thank you so much for talking to us and uh, sharing your story and sharing your values about design and uh, about uh, your ideas for future and so on. It was great talking to you for now. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been really, really fun. Uh, I, I love what you guys are doing and doing it so young. I, you know, just so you know, I was nowhere near where you were at your age. I was very... Uh, naive of the world I didn't know much and 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 really having that sense of always wanting to absorb the world and what it has to offer uh, I wish you have this for the rest of your life because uh, what's in front of you is going to be really fun and that was a fun interesting and insightful conversation with Fanam Bagley for this week uh, we are going to catch up with you next week thank you so much for tuning in signing off for now this is Sunny. It's Connie. <laughs> this is Funan Bagley.